Good morning, everyone. Welcome to the Bible class at St. Paul's Lutheran Church in De Pere, Missouri. And a special welcome to all of those who are with us this morning listening on KFUO Radio. Welcome. We're glad to have all of you with us today. My name is Jerry Bodie. I'm a member here at St. Paul's, and I teach in the Department of Historical Theology at Concordia Seminary in St. Louis. And this is a class that's a little different than most of the classes that we have on Sunday mornings at St. Paul's. Usually we have a Bible class in which we talk about a series of readings, perhaps the texts for a particular Sunday. We might be working our way through the book of a Bible. Uh, but this class is a little bit different. In this summer, we're looking for a few weeks at the history of the early church, and in particular, at the earliest Christians. The time span for this class really goes from the end of the book of Acts until about the year 337. 337 is the year of the death of Emperor Constantine. The Roman Emperor Constantine was the first of the Roman emperors to convert from paganism to Christianity. And Constantine also was the one that made Christianity a, a, a tolerated religion within the Roman Empire. So those are kind of the bookends for this class, end of the book of Acts to about the early fourth century. So we're looking at the first several hundred years of the history of the early church, and in particular, the experience and the, the practice and the faith of the earliest Christians in that church. Now, last time we were talking about the fall of Jerusalem in the year 70 AD. This was when the Roman Empire came in to quell a revolt, a rebellion that the Jews were having against the Roman, particular issues like taxation and other things like that. And the conflict escalated into a full-scale war in which not only were the Jews and the Jewish armies defeated by the Romans, but the Romans took the city of, uh, city of Jerusalem. They besieged it, and after a siege of about seven months, the city fell. It was a, a really horrible siege and a horrible series of events that took place after that fall of Jerusalem. Judea itself fell again to the Romans. So the Romans have taken complete control of Palestine, of Judea, and Jerusalem by the year 73 AD. This causes a diaspora, a spreading, a scattering, not only of the Jews out of Jerusalem and out of Judea, but especially of Christians. Many of the Christians who had been living in Jerusalem in that area left after the fall of the city of Jerusalem. And where they went was out into the greater Mediterranean world in particular. This was a world uh, of places like North Africa and Syria and Asia Minor and Greece and Italy and places like that is where the Christians spread and where they settled and established churches. This is, as you can imagine, this is a very difficult time for these Christians. Most of the earliest Christians in Judea were, were Jews. They were from... Uh, you know, Jewish tribes and families that had lived in, in, uh, in Judea and other places for many, many years, to go out into a foreign land with a foreign language was very difficult for them. And they faced a lot of challenges. We're going to hear about some of the challenges that they faced today, and we're going to hear about how they tried to maintain themselves and their identity as Christians in this Greco-Roman world. We talked a little bit last time about the scriptures and we pointed out, and I just want to re review this briefly, we pointed out 
that the Apostle Paul wrote his letters, the ones that we have in the New Testament. He wrote those letters between about the year 50 and about the year 65 AD. So in the first century, Paul was writing his letters. Those letters were copied and circulated among the Christians after the time that he wrote them. Uh, we mentioned that the Synoptic Gospels, these are the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and also the book of Acts, those were all written by the year 75 or 80. Those Gospels were, were down on, on paper or papyrus. They also were being copied and circulated among the early Christian churches. We mentioned, for example, that the other books of the New Testament, like the, the uh, Gospel of John, John's epistles, and the book of Revelation, uh, were all written by about the years 85 to 95. In short, basically all of the books that we have in our New Testament today, all those books were written by the end of the first century. And Christians and Christian churches had copies of those books. Not all the churches had all the books, but they were all out there. They were being circulated and copied. They were being used and read by the early Christians at the end of the first century. And we're going to talk later on about the role that the New Testament in particular will play in the early church. But I just wanted you to know that as the Christians go out from Jerusalem into the Hellenistic Greek world, they have the scriptures with them, basically the New Testament uh, that we know it uh, today. Now, we can assume that most of these New Testament books were being read and used by early Christians, and they were helpful to, to them in identifying who they were and what they believed and how they acted as Christians in, in the world. However, there were other books that were being used in the early Christian church or being used by the end of the first century or certainly by the second century. There were other books that are not included in the New Testament. And these books are, were not included for a variety of reasons. But the books are interesting for early church historians because they tell us more about the life of the early church. They tell us about what the early Christians believed, uh, how they worshiped, uh, how they organized or structured themselves. How do they understand what it means to be a Christian? These books are useful for that. And I, I want to spend a little bit of time today talking about one of them because I think it will help us understand a little bit about how the Christians found their place, how they identified themselves in the world, and then how they will have to defend that, that belief, that identity, in the, in the decades that will follow. Now, there are several books, several examples that we could look at from the second century and uh, beyond, but I want to focus our attention on one of the better-known early ones, early texts called the Didache. The Didache. Now, the Didache is, has another name. Sometimes it's called the Teaching of the Twelve Apostles. The Teaching of the Twelve Apostles. The first line of the book reads the teaching, the didache, of the Lord to the nations by the twelve apostles. So that's the first line. It's like the, the heading on the first page of the book. The teaching, the didache, of the Lord to the nations by the twelve apostles. So this thing is presented as the apostolic teaching, the teachings of the apostles. And it was it's really much like a, an early Christian catechism. 
kind of like a handbook. If we were to, if you were to sit down today and read the didache, it, it's not very long. It might take you maybe 15 or 20 minutes to read the book. It's not very long. It's like a little, a little treatise. Or we might say like a little handbook, something that you could kind of put in your pocket. The didache offers instruction in the Christian life and Christian worship practices. It contains exhortations for Christians as well as warnings, admonitions. Be like this, don't be like that. Uh, this is what it means to be a Christian and it's, this is not Christian behavior. So it's got warnings but it also has encouragement. Now the Didache was written in Greek. Uh, and this is not surprising to us that the Christian churches were going into a Greek world. Many of the early Christians spoke Greek, so this is a book that they would be able to read and understand. The date of the origin of the Didache is uncertain. We don't know when it was written, and there's been a lot of speculation about when it was written. We do know that many of the early church fathers, the early, the early writers in the church, we know that they make reference to it. They will quote it, or they'll refer to the Didache and its teaching. It may have been written as early as 70 AD. Now, if you think about that, that would put it at the same time as some of the books that we have in our New Testament, same time that those books were being written. That's, that's an early date, but it's very likely that it could have been written in the first century. Some scholars have suspected that it dates from a later date, maybe the second century, even the third century. But most scholars today believe that it is a first century document. And for that reason, it's a very valuable one for our understanding of the early church. Now, the Didache is an anonymous work. We don't know who wrote it. There's a lot that we don't know about this book. The author is unknown to us. It is likely, however, that it was written by uh, one of the apostolic fathers. Now, the apostolic fathers are a group of early church pastors and theologians that historians uh, believe were uh, working in the, in the first century and in the second century and the Apostolic Fathers in particular were probably pastors or teachers that personally knew the Apostles. So some of these Apostolic Fathers personally knew John, for example, who wrote the Gospel of John, wrote the Epistles, the Book of Revelation. Uh, Clement of Rome, for example, is, was an early church pastor in the city of Rome. Uh, he is regarded as one of the apostolic fathers. Ignatius, who was the bishop of Antioch, was an, uh, one of these apostolic fathers. And we know that he sat at the feet of the apostle John and heard the words of Jesus and Jesus' teaching from uh, John himself. Polycarp of Smyrna, he was a bishop in the Asia Minor city of Smyrna. He's another example of one who sat at the feet of these apostles. Now, you can imagine that if you've got somebody that actually sat at the feet of John or Paul or Timothy or Titus and got the straight scoop from them, they, their testimony would be, would be valuable. What was Jesus really like? What did he really say? Well, these early apostolic fathers give us a good idea of what that was all about. So these early apostolic fathers wrote treatises, they wrote letters, they wrote their own epistles, 
uh, and these are considered very, very important. Now, again, we don't know who wrote the Didache. We don't have a name attached to it, but it is uh, probably written by one of these apostolic fathers in the first or early second century. So the Didache is an important source for our knowledge of the uh, worship practice uh, in the early church. It's helpful for us to know how the, the structure of the church, especially at the local level, what an individual congregation was like. Uh, there were some people in the early church who valued the Didache so highly that they, they included it in the New Testament apocryphal writings. And we know about the Old Testament Apocrypha. These were books that were, really, were not included in the canon. There are New Testament Apocryphal books as well, and sometimes the Didache has included in that. But I want to emphasize the fact, as, as I think you all know, the Didache is not included in the New Testament. And there's a number of reasons for that. One, because we don't know who wrote it. And they didn't know exactly where it came from in the early church, so they were, some, some, they were very careful about the books that they would put into the New Testament. But we'll talk more about, about the development of the New Testament books and the New Testament canon. We'll do that at a later point. The Didache has three parts to it. The first part deals with the way that Christians are to live. It's really about Christian ethics. The second part deals with the early church worship practices. It's very brief, but it gives us an interesting glimpse. So it talks a little bit about baptism and Lord's Supper, and prayer, and things like that. The third part of the Didache deals with church organization, and in particular with the role of elders in the church, and pastors, and teachers. I think in many ways, what we see here when we look at a book like the Didache, which I said is kind of like a catechism, I think you can see with the Didache as an example, that the New Testament church, the early church, is carrying out Matthew 28. Remember Jesus, uh, before he ascends into, into heaven, he gathers his disciples and he tells them, go, teach, baptize, teach everything that I have taught you. Uh, that's what the early church is doing. And the Didache, I think, is a good example of that. But what I'd like to do first is talk a little bit about the first part of the Didache and give you some examples of, of how the early church understood the Christian life. And I've got some of the text on the screen uh, in, in, in slides that you can see. There's other uh, things that I'm going to read that are not on the screen. I just There's a lot that I could read, and I don't want to uh, put too much on a screen for you to have to look at. But I want to read to you a little bit about uh, what the Didache says about the Christian life. And you, you can see if you think that this sounds familiar or if any of this rings a bell with you. It starts out like this. There are two ways, one of life and one of death. And there is a great difference between the two ways. The way of life is this. First of all, you shall love the God who made you. And secondly, love your neighbor as yourself. And do nothing to any other that you would not have befall yourself. Now, of these words, the doctrine, teaching, is this. Bless those who curse you and pray for your enemies and fast for those who persecute you. Now, that should be familiar to you. What, is that, what does that sound like? Where, where have you heard exhortations like that before? 
Love your neighbor as yours. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. And love your neighbor as yourself. Who said that? Jesus. Okay. So far, so good. They're on the right track, right? Uh, and that's, you notice how they kind of summarize it right there. This is what it's all about, is love of God, love for neighbors. And then it kind of goes on from there. Listen, I'm going to read a little bit further here. I don't have this on the screen, so just bear with me. But this is, it, it goes on like this. If any man strikes you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. If a man forces you to go with him one mile, go with him two. If a man takes away your cloak, give him also your coat. If a man takes away from you what is yours, do not ask for it back. Give to every man who asks of you and do not ask for it back. For the father desires that gifts be given to all from his own bounties. Sounds fairly familiar. Even some of the uh, things are right out of, out of the gospels. Things that we hear from Jesus' own teaching. It goes on in chapter 2 of the Didache. We've gone from a very simple summarized teaching. Now we're going to get into some more detail, details about what the Christian life is to look like. And this is the second commandment of the teaching, the Didache reads. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not corrupt boys. You shall not commit fornication. You shall not steal. You shall not deal in magic. You shall do no sorcery. You shall not murder a child by abortion, nor kill them when born. You shall not covet your neighbor's goods. You shall not perjure yourself. You shall not bear false witness. You shall not speak evil. You shall not cherish a grudge. You shall not be double-minded or double-tongued. And it goes on to talk about what happens when you do all those things. The details, it goes a little bit further on, but not much. Um, what is that? What, is, what, what does all that exhortation sound like? The commandments, in particular, the second table of the law, right? And these are all commandments. Some of them are, are verbatim, right out of, out, of, uh, out of the commandments. Some of them are uh, kind of elaborations, further in, in meanings of what these uh, commandments mean. I, I, I want to point out one thing about this. You notice that it says there that you shall not murder a child by abortion or kill them when born. Uh, there are, uh, this shouldn't surprise us that they, that they do this. Abortion and, and killing of children when, when infants was something that was, that was not uncommon in the Greco-Roman world in the first and second centuries. Abortion was rather widespread, but there was also the practice of, uh, especially by the Greeks, of taking babies, infants who were unwanted after they were born and they would be taken out into some lonely, desolate place and abandoned there. To the elements, to the wild animals. Uh, sometimes it would, the child would be taken up on a, on a mountaintop and left there. Uh, and the, um, there's, I, I remember, and I, I'm trying to, I couldn't find the reference, but I remember reading one time about some Christian women who got into trouble because they followed one of these women as she went up to abandon her baby. And then they found the baby and took it home and raised it. They adopted it for their own, and they were found out. And, and punished for doing this. But the, the Christians have a reputation in the first and second century, the third century, and you can hear about the Christian apologists 
those who are defending the Christian faith in the second and third centuries, the Christians have a reputation for being opposed to abortion. Uh, and I think it's just kind of interesting that they, uh, that's one of the things that the Romans know about Christians, is that they're, uh, they're, they're pro-life, if you will. Uh, it's a, a long-standing a long uh, tradition in the Christian church, church with, with regard to children. The, uh, the Didache goes on. I don't have any more text to show you on the screen, but I want to read some more. It goes into a little bit more detail. This is where we're getting into the admonitions, the warnings. Uh, the Didache reads in chapter 3, My child, flee from every evil and everything that resembles it. Do not be easily angry, for anger leads to murder. Nor be jealous, nor contentious, nor wrathful. For all these things cause murders. It goes on a little later. My child, do not be a liar, since lying leads to theft. Nor be covetous, nor proud. For all these things cause thefts. My child, do not be a murmurer, since it leads to blasphemy. Nor be self-willed, neither a thinker of evil thoughts. For all these things cause blasphemies. But be meek, since the meek shall inherit the earth. Where have you heard that before? The Beatitudes in Matthew chapter 5, Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. It continues, you shall never forsake the commandments of the Lord, but shall keep what you have received, neither adding to them nor taking away from them. Notice that. Don't add anything. To the teachings of Jesus and don't take anything away from them either. You know, this is reiterated a lot in the Didache. They're very concerned about this. No subtraction, no addition. The teaching is the teaching. In church you shall confess your sins and you shall not go to your prayer with an evil conscience. This is the way of life. And then we segue in the next chapter, but this is the way of death. Uh, and it goes on. It basically is a reiteration of, of the Ten Commandments, especially the second table of the law, and a warning of all the things that result from sinning against God, according to those commandments. The whole discussion of the uh, Christian ethics of Christian life ends like this. May you be delivered, my children, from all of these things, all these, all these sinful things. They're basically just elaborations of the Ten Commandments. There's nothing in there that really would surprise you. So it gives you a sense that the Christians are, are taking God's law and applying it to their own lives in their contexts and trying to find their own way. Does, does anybody have any questions about this first part of the Didache? I'm going to move on and talk about uh, the, the worship practices. But any, anything about the Christian life? Yeah, the question is, is it a document that individuals would have, or would it be read at church? I think the answer to the question is yes, both. Uh, but it's really designed to be a, a book that is for guidance for Christians, probably in leadership positions in the church, so that they can take this and then teach it to their own people. And when we get into the last section of the book, we'll talk a little bit about you know, kind of who was doing what at, at, the, at the local congregational level. And I think it's probably safe to say that a, a book like this, while it could be used by by regular Christians, it probably was used by the teachers or the elders, the elders in the church. And uh, the elders are going to be like overseers. And so they would be ones that would, would keep a tab on 
on how people were living in their, in their Christian community. Yeah, so it probably was designed for them. We don't really know for certain because the, the Didache itself doesn't tell us, you know, who this is for in particular. It's just kind of for the, for the Christian church. Any other questions about this first section? Oh, were there, were there uh, uh, copies of it everywhere is the question. Uh, yes, it really was widely disseminated in the early church. It was not something that was just recently discovered or anything like that. And I, uh, I think there are, are church fathers as, as early as the third century, so in the 200s, that are quoting it and making reference to it. So it was, it was widely spread around enough that, that probably was copied like Pauline epistles were copied. Yeah. And that's why you find some people by the, by the third century, some people are suggesting that maybe the Didache should be included in the New Testament. Now, it, it wasn't. Uh, but, but some people thought, well, maybe we, could, we should consider putting that one in there too. Uh, but, but they didn't do that. So, yeah, it was probably pretty widely spread. And, and I think in part because what you find in here, and I'm, I'm kind of letting you see this as we go through, there's really nothing in here that should surprise us. It's pretty consistent. In fact, some of the things, as we get in here in a little bit, some of the things are, are things that we actually do here at St. Paul's or very similar to what we do at St. Paul's to this day. So that uh, should, should tell you that they, the people in the early church thought this was on the right track, even though they didn't put it in the New Testament collection. Anything else about the Christian life in the Didache? Well, how were the Christians organized? If, if you don't mind, I'm going to wait just a little bit to talk about that. We know that they are, some of them are, are small groups in worshiping in houses, for example. Uh, some of them will build church buildings, and I'll show you some pictures of those in a little bit. But if you don't mind, I'll wait till we get the organization section, and I will talk a little bit more about how individual congregations were organized at that time. Okay. Let's go on and look at the, uh, at the, some of the worship practices. The Didache has a discussion of baptism. So you start with the Christian ethics, the, the teaching of the Christian faith, if you will, the life, and then it goes right into baptism for there. So it offers instruction. Baptism, the Didache says, is to be done in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And it is to be done, the Didache says, by triple immersion in the living water. Now, that a living water would be flowing water, like a river. So the Christians who are following the Didache would, would go out into a river and baptize in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit by immersing three times. Now, that shouldn't surprise us. We've heard of Christians doing that uh, in the past. Sometimes they do it today. Uh, but I, I think it's interesting that right away the Didache says, now, if you can't do that, if you can't do triple immersion in a river then it may be administered, baptism may be administered by effusion, it says, which means pouring. You take your hand and you put water in it and you pour it over the head of the person being baptized three times. And I didn't get a real close look. I was kind of sitting in the back this morning in the 8 o'clock service, but I'm pretty sure that's what Pastor Thompson did uh, to little, little Ford who was baptized this morning. And that's generally our practice here at St. Paul's. Uh, and you will find many examples. This is, this is an old uh, picture from the Roman catacombs of someone being baptized in, in a lake or in a river. But this is a picture of an early Christian church in Asia Minor from the 4th century. And you can see from this picture, right in the middle of the picture, is a cross-shaped uh, baptistry. This would be like a little tiny uh, 
swimming pool, uh, pool where people would enter and be baptized. So and this is very common practice in the early church by the 3rd and 4th centuries to have baptism founts, if you will, built into the architecture of a church. And so people would go in and be baptized right there in the church. It was probably done by immersion, uh, but it, of course that is not the uh, universal practice in the, even in the early church with regard to baptism. Okay. Now, the didache uh, assumes, presumes that some kind of Christian instruction, some instruction in the Christian faith is taking place before an adult is baptized. And the first section of the didache suggests that the, here's the teaching, and this teaching is to be learned by, before a person is baptized. Now, as you probably know, it was very common practice in the early church to baptize adults. And they would go through this instruction, and, uh, and then they would be baptized. Now, part of that was simply because many people were converted to the Christian faith from some other pagan religion. Uh, and so, or some other, maybe from Judaism, they were baptized as well. And uh, whatever the religion they were coming from, they would be taught. And of course, these are adults who are being baptized. We know, for example, that Emperor Constantine himself was baptized. He was baptized right at the end of his life, but he had been a professing Christian for years. Now, why he was baptized at the end of his life, we'll talk about that when we talk more about Constantine. But... Um, the, the point is that, that they, we, we don't see babies being baptized on a wide scale at this point because so many adult conversions are happening. There is a point at which the early church will begin to baptize infants too. Uh, but that comes a little bit later on. One recommendation that the didache has is that the one who is being baptized and uh, any others who are witnessing the baptism, anybody who can, should fast for a day or two beforehand. So the person baptized, the, maybe the one doing the baptism would actually fast beforehand. That's a practice that I don't, we don't really follow that today, but it's a recommendation. It's a serious thing. It's about preparation and prayer uh, and, and concentration on, on the Word of God in preparation for, um, for coming into the Christian church. Fasting, there's a whole discussion of fasting in the Didache, it recommends that uh, Christians fast two days per week on Wednesdays and on Fridays uh, because we don't want to do it any other days because that's when everybody else does the fasting. The pagans and the hypocrites fast on other days, so we'll take Wednesdays and Fridays to make, every, make it clear to everybody that we're not, you know, we're, we're different. We're part of the Christian church, so we have our own days. As you probably know, the, the tradition of fasting on Fridays or abstaining from meat on Fridays was a, a long tradition in the Catholic Church. The Didache gives this, this uh, uh, instruction on prayer and on daily prayer. For example, it instructs Christians to pray the Lord's Prayer three times a day. doesn't say when during the day, just three times a day. And the text of the Lord's Prayer, the one that we say in church on Sunday, the one with the doxology at the end of it, that text of the Lord's Prayer, as we know it, is included in the Didache. There. Pray this. This is the Lord's Prayer. Pray this three times a day. There are other prayers as well, but included in the book. But this is one that, that is to be prayed three times a day. The, uh, the Lord's Supper. The Didache offers instruction in the Lord's Supper, but it's really done in the form of prayers. 
So what we know about the Lord's Supper practice really comes from the prayers. The, uh, there are prayers to be prayed before and after receiving the Lord's Supper. Not much is said about the Lord's Supper outside of these prayers. So there's not a lot of content or details there. But the prayers themselves reveal a couple of things. First, baptism in the name of the Lord is to have been done before one may partake of the Lord's Supper. So you've got instruction in the Christian faith. You have baptism and then participation in the Lord's Supper. Second, the importance of repentance is really emphasized in the Didache. Christians should repent of their sins, make confession of their sins, my, my language, repent before God, before coming to the Lord's Supper. The third thing that the Didache emphasizes about the Lord's Supper is the importance of giving thanks to God for bringing us to salvation and life through Jesus Christ. So, again, the, the, the uh, Didache, with regard to Lord's Supper, emphasizes uh, that a person should be baptized and trained in the Christian faith, that they should repent of their sins before reception, and that it's important to thank God for what we're receiving. I want to give you a couple of examples of the prayers that are included in the Didache. Uh, uh, I don't, yeah, I, I've got one here that you can see on the screen. It, the Didache reads, and after you have eaten enough, this is the eaten of the Lord's Supper, give thanks thus with these words. We give you thanks, Holy Father, for your holy name, which you have made to dwell in our hearts, and for the knowledge and faith and eternal life or immortality, which you have made known to us through your Son, Jesus. Yours is the glory forever and ever. So that's a very early prayer related to the Lord's Supper. Here's another one. Almighty Master, you created all things for your name's sake and gave food and drink to men for enjoyment that they might give you thanks. But you gave us spiritual food and drink and eternal life through your Son. Before all things, we give you thanks that you are powerful. Yours is the glory forever and ever. Here's another one. Remember, Lord, your church to deliver it from all evil and to perfect it in your love. And gather it together from the four winds, sanctified for your kingdom which you have prepared for it. For yours is the power and the glory forever and ever. May grace come and may this world pass away. Hosanna to the God of David. If any man is holy, let him come. If any man is not holy, let him repent. Maranatha. Amen. Come, Lord. Actually, these are not dissimilar from prayers that we have today in, in church, even related to the Lord's Supper. There are, other than that, there's not a lot of detail. Lutheran theologians might like to have a beautifully articulated doctrine of the real presence in the Lord's Supper that's handed down from the early church. It's not there. It's very simple. It's instructions on how to worship and how to practice, how to administer uh, baptism, for example. There will be more details that will come later on as the church grows and develops, but that's just a little bit of a taste for you on how the church Practices. Any questions on baptism or prayer or fasting or Lord's Supper practice? It's just the basics for the early Christian church.
Well, I'd like to go on and talk a little bit more about um, church organization. And here we'll get to your question about, about how, to, how the church, what does it look like at this early point. The structure of these early churches is very simple. And we're going to be talking in particular about the local congregation. Congregations were usually in towns or in cities. There are not a lot of rural congregations at this point, but they're located in, in towns and cities. The uh, first places that Christians would worship would be in homes. Uh, and they might gravitate towards a larger home uh, if need be. And when the home was filled with people, then maybe another house church would start in another part of town. And so another congregation would form over there. And they might have one person that would administer or oversee or look to those churches, or kind of direct them, but, but they would be really based out of homes. It's only later on that congregations will build their own church buildings. And uh, usually when, after uh, Christianity is made in a, a, a legally tolerated religion within the Roman Empire, then you usually see more buildings being built in cities, for example. And on the screen here, you can see the ruins of a church in Antioch in Asia Minor from the 4th century. You can kind of see this outer wall. Uh, this is a church that is, uh, they're, they're doing an archaeological excavation of this particular church. Well, with the very early churches, especially the house churches in towns and in cities, not every town or city had, had a, its own pastor or a teacher. And you remember the way that the Apostle Paul and, and Timothy and Titus and some of the early missionaries went. They would travel from, from town to town teaching. And initially they did it in the synagogues. And then later on they would do this in homes. But for a long time in the early church, the first people to go out and do this kind of missionary work were traveling preachers. They were missionaries. Um, and so they were, you might say they were traveling apostles. They were ones who had been sent the Didache kind of picks up on this and says that these traveling apostles or prophets, they would call them, they were teachers really, that the Didache says that these teachers may serve as basically the pastors in local congregations. So you've got these, these traveling people that come through town. You don't have residential pastors right away. You've got it, itinerants. People who come and go. So the didache offers instruction on how to, how to regard them. How do you know when one of these traveling preachers comes into town? How do you know that they're okay? That they're reliable? Much of the treatment in the didache on this topic has to do with determining whether or not these teachers are true or whether or not they're false. Okay. Do, we got a, do we got a good guy here, or, or is, is he, is he going to lead us astray? The Didache gives, gives us some hints as to how the early Christians looked for this. I'll give you, you, you might find this kind of interesting. One of the best ways to spot a false teacher, the Didache says, is to uh, catch one not practicing what he preaches. So keep an eye on him when he's not in church on Sunday morning. What does he do? At, where does he go at night? You know, where does he, what is he up to? Is he, in other words, is he a hypocrite? The next question. Uh, he's a false prophet if he's always after money. Okay. If he, this is a direct quote. If he asks for money, he's a false prophet. 
Another interesting criteria for a false prophet. He shouldn't stay too long. But uh, this is a direct quote. He shall not stay more than a single day. Or if there be a need, he can stay two. But if he stays three days, he's a false prophet. <laughs> Things are going to change. It's okay. Don't worry. It, it'll, they, they, uh, they adopt a different model. Most importantly, though, for the didache, it says that a teacher must teach a message that is consistent with the gospel teaching. In other words, consistent with the texts, the Bible texts that we've got. They don't have a, a, a New Testament in one book yet, but they've got the gospels. They know the teaching of Jesus. They know what the Apostle Paul has taught in his letters. And if somebody comes into town preaching something that contradicts that, and you send him on his way. He has no place. Uh, the Didache says that if a teacher does that, if he comes in and teaches differently, send him away. If the teacher himself is perverted and teaches a different doctrine to the destruction of what you have been taught, do not listen to him. But, the Didache says, if he teaches of the increase of righteousness and the knowledge of the Lord, then receive him as the Lord himself, as Christ himself. So if he's consistent, then receive him. But notice that the didache is telling people to keep an eye on, there's a reason for this, because there's false teachers running around, people after their own gain. Somebody's going to say, hey, I could make some money doing this, right? I can go around and, and, uh, and work this to my advantage. The didache is concerned about that possibility. But notice also that, and I think this is a really, really important point that the Didache makes. Christians should be paying attention. And Christians basically are judging the teaching on the basis of, of the gospel itself. And the Christians have the right to send somebody packing if he's teaching falsely. This is that's a very interesting uh, exhortation that the Didache uh, have. The same is true today. Actually, absolutely the same thing is today true in our, in our own church. If we had a, we, we don't have this, but if we had a false teacher here at St. Paul's, oh, I bet you a whole bunch of people would be all over it. You would know, and that's right, and that's the way the Christian church has, has been. Well, the Didache is just one example of how the early Christians dealt with questions like this. But what we also find in the Didache is Christians teaching other Christians about the faith and the life. And so the Didache then, especially with the point about the Christian ethics, it becomes kind of a handbook or a catechism, a reference for early Christians to use. And its purpose is really to teach. It is to, to regulate uh, Christian life and practice in an organized Christian community. It is, the Didache is not really concerned about articulating the gospel of Jesus Christ. There are other ways of doing that. And so while the teaching of the Didache reflects some of Jesus' teaching during his earthly ministry, it, the Didache does not talk a lot about the cross of Christ. It does not mention his resurrection. Well, that's, that's interesting. It does not talking about the resurrection of Jesus in there. We would like to see that, wouldn't we? But it's not there because its purpose is different. Uh, 
the, the, the meaning of Christ for the church is not really fully expressed. So it doesn't have a lot of gospel content to it. Rather, it is designed chiefly to bring order to the church. I'd like to talk a little bit now about the, about the church structure and, and the role of the pastors. What you have in, in terms of the structure of the local congregation uh, in the earliest period, you have people who are, are new convents, converts to the church, who are just getting started in the faith. You have people who have been there a little bit longer. Some of those may be uh, teachers within the church and may teach the new Christians the, the gospel of Jesus and all about the Christian life. But there would be these traveling preachers or teachers who would come by once in a while. The Didache reflects a form of the early church that is really structured or governed, if you will, in a collegial way. These are Christians who are dealing with one another as Christians. They treat one another. No one's anxious to be the boss, but they are anxious to serve one another to help one another, to care for one another, not simply with their physical needs, uh, material things, but they're also concerned about their, their, their salvation. It's really kind of a, a beautiful thing. So while these teachers and prophets and missionaries come and go, the Christians are still there in that one place, and they continue to care for one another. They continue to teach one another. Well, one of the things that's, that's going to develop by the time we get into the end of the first century, and especially in the second century, in the third century, is that you have changes in the church structure where you go from having these itinerant missionaries who come and stay for no more than three days or two. Uh, they're going to come and go. Gradually, as the Christian church grows and becomes more settled and more established, we will find that, that uh, we don't have those itinerants coming through so much anymore. But you have people that are, are chosen by congregations to lead and to be the teachers in those places. They're the ones who kind of supervise the church. So over time, the church develops a form of, of residential ministry where you have pastors who stay in a place for a period of time, teachers who stay in a place for a period of time. Now, I, I want to emphasize that we do find cases in the first century of residential pastors. And we talked about them in the first week. We mentioned Peter, for example. We believe that Peter was in Antioch in Syria for about 20 years working as a pastor there. Now, that's really unusual. Antioch is an unusual place. We find similar things happening in Rome and in Ephesus. Remember, John was in Ephesus for many years, basically as the pastor uh, we also find it in the island of Crete, where uh, Titus was. So there are places in the first century where you have pastors that kind of settle down in one place. But most congregations in towns and cities couldn't have their own apostle as their pastor. So how do you, how do you and, and not everybody can have their own traveling missionary to settle down. So how do you move from itinerant pastor to residential pastor? How do you move from resident teacher from itinerant teacher to a resident uh, teacher. Over time, they will, they will settle down. And these, these early pastors will be the ones who will settle down and they will preach, they will teach. In particular, they will do catechetical instruction and train up people who are being prepared, getting ready for baptism. Uh, they will conduct worship services. 
they'll baptize, they'll celebrate the Lord's Supper, they will exercise pastoral care, and they will administer, kind of give general oversight to the churches. Much of what our pastors do today, pastor's job today is very complicated, but the, the very basic things, preaching, teaching, pastoral care, were things that these early pastors were doing. Now, we know that, we even know this from the New Testament, that these early pastors or people serving in this role, were usually called presbyters. Presbyter. Now, we get the English word Presbyterian from that, which is really referring to a, a structure, a church polity or church structure. But we also get the, the English word priest from the Greek word presbyter. It's a Greek word presbyteros. But initially, a, a, a presbyter is really an elder. An elder. Uh, is, this is, uh, an elder is a man who had been a Christian for a long time in a church, probably knew the people in the congregation well. The elder was one who was knowledgeable in the faith and experienced in church matters. It's very likely that the presbyteros or the elder had actually been a teacher at, at the local church. He was a resident guy. He wasn't itinerant. So basically, these are people in the church who have have emerged as as kind of leaders, uh, people who are uh, teachers, for example. These presbyters or elders basically became, the earliest guys basically became what we know as pastors who oversaw the local church. Uh, and I'm going to give you a, a very prominent example of this in just a second. But those, those presbyters would also sometimes be called episkopoi, from which this is episkopos in Greek, from which we get the English word episcopal, which also refers to a, a church structure or polity. But we get the English word bishop from episkopos. Now, these bishops were, were basically pastors at the local level. Uh, they were the overseers. That's what episcopos means. An episcopus is one who administers or oversees, directs. I'll give you some specific examples of how that language is used in, in just a second. The key thing I want you to know, though, is that these elders and these bishops, these, these presbyters and the bishops, were appointed by the local congregation. They were appointed by the early Christians at the local level. So if you think about that, if we just fast forward to today, when we have elders here at St. Paul's, those elders are called or elected, appointed by the congregation. When St. Paul's calls a pastor, the congregation itself calls someone to be a pastor. It hasn't really changed from, from this very time. The, the way we do it maybe is a little bit different, but the process is, is fundamentally the same. Now, we know, some things about what, we know some things about what these appointed pastors were to be like. We know, for example, they were to be blameless uh, the husband of one wife, etc. We know this from, uh, the, from the Didache itself, but we have scriptural witness to this as well. And I, I want to take just a minute to talk about, about the Apostle Paul and his epistle to Titus. You remember that the epistle to Titus and the two epistles to Timothy are what we call Paul's pastoral epistles. He's writing to Timothy and Titus, who are pastors, and he's Paul's giving them exhortation and direction on how to be pastors or how to be better pastors. Titus was the one that had accompanied the Apostle Paul on several missionary journeys before uh, working more intensively on the island of Crete 
That's this big island out in the Mediterranean, south of Greece. And Titus became the leader of the church on the island of Crete. And Paul writes to Titus because he's heard some things. Uh, he's, Paul has heard, for example, that the church there in Crete is a little disorganized, that the people need a lot of instruction in the Christian faith and life. And so Paul writes his letter to Titus and tells him basically, uh, get to work, Titus, and here's how you do it. So it's directions. And I, I want to just have you take a look at this slide here. This is a text from Titus chapter 1, verses 5 through 9. And see if this sounds familiar based on what we've just been talking about with regard to the, the, the didache and the early structure of the church. Paul writes to Titus, This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders for spiteroi. Appoint elders in every town, as I directed you. Notice that, elders in every town. So every town's going to have a church, and an elder is going is to lead it. Paul goes on. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife, and his children are believers, and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. For an overseer, an episcopus, an overseer as God's steward must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. Again, Titus chapter 1, verses 5 through 9. Now notice here that Paul uses the language of elder and he uses the word overseer, okay? presbyter and episcopus. But what Paul really is doing here is using those terms elder and overseer for the same office of leadership in the church. And the difference comes in that Paul uses the word elder when he's talking about the man's qualifications for the office. And he uses the term episcopus or overseer when talking about the responsibilities of the man and the office. Okay. So they're basically one person who is a, a, an elder who has an episcopus role, an elder who's an overseer. They kind of go together. Now today in the church, both elders and pastors serve as stewards of a congregation. They're caretakers of the congregation. They teach. They are, uh, in a sense, caretakers of the people of God in a particular congregation. So even though kind of maybe the, the role of an elder is a little bit different, and we don't call our pastors bishops, uh, we have a, a different way of talking about them in the church. The basic things are, are there all the way from... Um, from the New Testament, but also reflected in the Didache itself. The point that I want to make in bringing Titus into this, and Paul, is that the form of a church organization and leadership that was recommended by Paul in the pastoral epistles was actually being developed in the early Christian church. And we see that reflected in the Didache. In other words, people are paying attention to what Paul told Timothy and Titus and they're actually following it out. It's reflected in the Didache, and it will be reflected in the early church. 
I need to stop at this point. Does anybody have any questions about the early church structure or organization? As you can imagine, there's a lot of development of that structure that will take place over the years. But I think you can see that there's really kind of a, a flow from the New Testament, Paul, for example, the way he established the church at the local level, that will continue over into other churches as they are established in the first and second centuries. Any questions or comments? Yes, please. Yeah, thank you for asking that question. <clears throat> the, the, the observation was made that by this time you have 15 or 20 popes by the, by the second century. Those popes are all the bishop of Rome. So they are the chief pastors in the church in Rome. And as we, what, what, I think what you find, if you were to go to Rome in the first, second century, you might find, find someone who's called a pastor, but they're probably not called pope yet. They, those guys were identified as bishops of Rome after a certain point in the church's history. Basically, the, bishop or the pope is the bishop of Rome. He's the head pastor of the church at a particular place. And it's only later on that the, the, the primacy, that the superior uh, standing of the, the Church of Rome was claimed by the, by the Roman Church. We'll talk a little bit when we get to uh, Constantine about that, because there'll be some more. What happens is that these, these leaders of the church are really become elevated. When the church becomes officially official uh, religion in the empire, then the role of the bishop is really elevated. And he becomes much more of an important person. They start to own land and big houses and things like that. Uh, and we'll talk all about that a little bit later on.